Can you imagine sitting in the pub chatting with your mates only to be interrupted by ads? Well, unfortunately, that does happen here at the Homebrew Pub because we're just trying to keep the lights on. However, if you would like to support us directly and get access to ad-free episodes of the Homebrew Pub, please head on over to our Patreon. You can find a link to that on our website, thehomebrewpub.com, and join our mug club. Again, our website, thehomebrewpub.com. I'll see you in the pub after the next couple of ads. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Homebrew Pub, the only pub in existence where every beer on tap is made by a homebrewer. And on this ethereal plane, the Homebrew Pub will turn into the guest brewer's perfect brew pub. So please come in, grab a stool, and grab a pint. This week, joining us in the Homebrew Pub, we have Kyle Ducham of NEK Meads. Hi Kyle! Hey, how's it going? Going good. Thank you for visiting the pub. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so you are into meats, and you reached out to me on Instagram after listening to the Making Poor Decisions episode with Steph, which was awesome. And you were like, hey, I want to come on and talk mead as well. And, you know, we're not exclusive here in, in the homebrew and pub. You want to talk mead, you want to talk wine, whatever you're into. Like, we, we invite people into these doors. So, yeah, thank you so much for reaching out. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, from hearing that conversation, I was just gravitated towards um, sharing different perspectives on the mead making process, how people get into it, how people then just grab something and then roll with it and um, dive down the hobby. I started back in 2019 at the kind of in the fall season. And uh, I started with making ciders from apples on my property. And from there, I was kind of hooked in fermentation. I didn't know what mead was, so I just looked up, hey, I have this equipment, I don't wanna brew anything, but uh, I wanna do everything cold side, so what, what else can I make with this? And then mead popped up, and then I started looking around for it, I started making some. My first few batches were really, really bad. They, <laughs> one of them got infected, and um, yeah, it was just, kind of a kind of a rough start but I just kept up with it and um it was a fantastic hobby to get into yeah I think this is I think this is a really strange hobby because 
you know, everyone has like one of the two sides of I made my first batch, either it's the best beer that they've ever had in their life or best mead. Or, and you know, once you get a few years down the road, you look back and you go, it really wasn't. Um, or you go the other way of like, it goes horrible, it gets infected, but there's something about it that just makes you want to pick up and do it again. Yeah, um, from what I was hearing in all these like, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and all these fantasy novels. It's the Elixir of the Gods, and mine was not Elixir of the Gods, so I kind of <laughs> wanted to see where I could go with it to make it so it was. Yeah. Um, so that was that was fun. It was kind of a, a challenge because I wasn't successful in the beginning. Mm-hmm. How many batches would you say it took you to get successful? Uh, probably six to ten. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, the nice part about mead is uh, it's really forgiving in the sense of if you don't really screw up too uh, poorly and you don't get something infected or anything like that, a lot of age can cure a lot of things. Not everything, but it can round things out and smooth things. Um, I have a really good example of that, actually, from when I dabbled into a particular style of mead. Um, in the beginning of my mead-making career, I mainly focused on mellow mills and... Um, like sizers and just things with a lot of fruit and kind of honey as the accent instead of honey as the forward. Mm -hmm. um, just because I thought that would be the most palatable thing for me. So I didn't start making traditionals until over a year into the hobby. And um, I made my first traditional actually this time last year. And I cracked open a bottle last night of that and it has rounded out really well and it's presenting in a way that the uh, monofloral varietal is really shining and there's not really any crazy off flavors and off notes mm. that I that was presented in the beginning. So like with traditionals, that's like the pilsners of mead. Like there's nothing but water, honey, yeast. Yeah. And there's nothing to hide behind, especially when you go toward the dry side. Um, Humans, we like sweet things. We're used to eating our berries that have some sugar to it. We're used to having honey that isn't fermented um, and has that really, you know, that gratifying sweetness. Um, so one of my personal um, endeavors is to make a really good dry traditional. But um, I'm just happy to see the progress I've made in just the traditional category itself, like right now. I have this uh, clover blossom, the sweet clover from uh, kind of like the North Dakota area. And it has like this really nice cinnamon um, taste to it, which is so unique. And I paired that with the, um, some apples that I harvested this fall for this uh, barrel project sizer that I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's the thing about meat. It can go everywhere. And... Um, I, th I think it's uh, really empowering that there's so many varieties of mead and so many styles. Like, you can have mead that's 5%. You can have mead that's upwards of 20%. You can have, <laughs> like, mead that's dry as a bone, super sweet, uh, fruit, spices, anything. On the, One of the more exotic meads I made has uh, Lapsang Sushang um, tea in it. Which, uh, I love is that really tea. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
one thing, so this is really interesting to me because I didn't know. So when I had my conversation with Steph, uh, you know, she was talking about like the different types of mead she makes in the sense of, oh, I made this crazy blue mead, which did the exact thing you said, aged out after a year. I don't know if you saw on our Instagram um, right after recorded it. Uh, she was like, all right, I'm going to crack open a bottle of this and see how it tastes now. And she's like, actually, it's not bad. Um, but what I didn't realize coming out of that conversation is there's all these different varietals of mead. So if you get into beer, obviously you got, like you mentioned, the Pilsner, you've got general lagers, you've got the IPA, you got the double dry hop IPA. So what are like some of the big buckets of mead? Um, and like, what are the kind of flavors? Yeah, so I think one of the most um, commercially successful mead uh, varietals is um, Melomels. So a lot of berries, um, different fruits like uh, stone fruits like peaches, uh, cherries. Um, Sizers are also a really popular one, which is an apple mead. Um, but usually anything with some fruit and then a little bit of sweetness. Those, those are usually the hallmark examples of mead in the market. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I've um, learned a lot as I've been both making mead and also purchasing and kind of doing research on mead is I get the whole gamut. Um, I've ordered mead from across the country. I've um, reviewed it on my page and it's just a great way to both support the meat industry and also like get a sense of, all right, this style of meat I really like. I like what they did in this recipe. I like how it presents because um, you don't know, necessarily know their entire process, but mm -hmm. you can taste the final product and see, hey, like I like the way the acidity kind of feels on this one. and um what i really enjoy is cracking open a mead especially one that has like a lot of berries in it seeing that rich berry color like a dark raspberry kind of thing and then just opening it and smelling the raspberries and the honey just waft through the air and fill the entire room like that that's one of my favorite mead experiences mm -hmm. um I think one of the reasons why those are very successful is that they bridge the gap really well between mead and wine. Um, Cause wine has a lot of the similar characteristics where like something like my lapsing Sushong mead with like dried peppers and 15% uh, barrel aged, little, some nutty notes from the honey and nutty, nutty notes from the barrel. That's a little more challenging of a sell. Yeah. Uh, so but I think yep the the other area of meads that's really popular is session strength because they are very crushable kind of like ciders. Mm -hmm. um, anything with fruit and then session meads are like near the top of the market. Mm -hmm. Does mead go through like so beer? I would say goes through like these periods of fashion. Um, you know, a couple of years ago it was all IPAs. Everything had to have citra in it. Um, now the, the craft beer world, and I would say the homebrewing world is turning more to lager. Does mead go through that or is it just more of, there's so much variety that, you know, no two meads are alike. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that stylistically, there are a lot of different mead makers. Like there's Ken Tram, for example, who's the master of fruit, um, mm -hmm. and mead. And then there's uh, people like Billy from Lost Cause who's doing all these uh, crazy things, especially with like Beauchade, um, cooked and caramelized honey. 
Um, some of the stuff he's done over there has been fantastic, but like there's such a wide gap between um, their styles of making mead that what they do is they kind of specialize in things, but also at the same time, I think there are trends in certain directions. And I think one of those trends is uh, barrel aging. Mm -hmm. um, I think mead lends itself really well to barrel aging. And historically that's been the case too, like in other places throughout the world that have a long and rich mead history. There's uh, Poland, for example, and they have very strict laws and regulations around volumes of water to honey when you start your mead. Um, they have aging restrictions. They have how long in a barrel and all these different uh, specific names and laws around it that we don't have in the U.S. In the U.S., it's, all right, this is a other than standard wine. Okay, <laughs> the the what U.S. is just mean? a free-for-all. Yeah. <laughs> But I think, like, looking toward the historical success of mead in other places throughout the world, I, I think the barrel-age stuff um, has kind of stood the test of time. And I see a lot of meaderies going toward that. Um, and personally, they're my favorite styles. Yeah. They're the most interesting. They, The combination between... It's like the bridge the gap between, um, like, really rich ports and spirits. Like... Yeah. That's kind of the way I see a lot of those barrel-aged meads. Because I was going to ask, when, you, when you're talking barrel-aged, I mean, uh, beer-wise, I think when we hear barrel-aged, we instinctively head towards bourbon, which I don't think is fair. I mean, I've had wonderful wine-aged barrel beers and, and things. Is there, like, so when you're talking barrel-aged, is that the instinct as well to go bourbon, or is it, you know, wine barrels, red, white? Um... I think the stereotypical is bourbon just because of availability, because of the laws around um, producing bourbon. There's just more second use barrels available. Yeah. Um, but I've seen, I've had meats aged in Laphroaig barrels. I've had meats aged in rum, uh, apple brandy barrels, uh, kind of the gamut. Right now, I have a 30 gallon barrel in my basement that has the sizer in there. And that was a new American oak, um, similar to bourbon, but a gin that was produced with honey. Oh, nice. Um, was put in there. And I called it the distillery, and they were pouring um, those out one day. And I, 20 minutes later, I had it filled with mead. <laughs> so it was the freshest you made and wettest barrel. 30 gallons of mead. That's amazing. I don't have like a large setup or anything. I just do it all in five gallon buckets and yeah. then just mix it all in the barrel and let it go. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. And and that's actually a really good point that if, um, you know, homebrewers and mead makers want to get into barrel aging, one of the best things you could do is just call up the local distillery and just be like, are you going to have a barrel offer to pay for it? Often they give you a great deal because they want to get that out of there. And, uh, yeah, we've got a, uh, I've got a 33 gallon barrel in my basement that we did pretty much exactly that. Yeah. I think, um, the interesting points with barrels and the home level is, uh, I think you'd want to have some friends lined up for, for it. Yeah. Um, what I've been, what I, what I have a plan for my barrel as far as like what's going to be in there and how long it's going to sit in there to get different flavor characteristics. I check it every two to three months to see how it's progressing. Mm -hmm. um, but 
but with it being a new American oak, there's still plenty of that that burnt um, vanillin characteristic that is typical with bourbon. Um, so I did a first run with a wildflower traditional just to get a sense of what the barrel is going to bring to the table. Um, and that sat in there for nine months. And that was actually the base of my lapsing Sushong mead. So like splitting the batches up and then flavoring it after is a fun thing to do as well. Yeah. But then uh, I knew that the second time around, I wouldn't get the same kind of barrel barrel contribution. I would still get some, but not as much and as aggressive as the initial. So that's why I put this sizer in here. I'm letting it age. It's probably going to age for like a year and a half to two years. And then from that point, it's not going to be neutral, but it's going to be closer to neutral. Mm -hmm. So what I will do with that is... uh, go toward the Polish style um, called Dwozniak, which is a one-to-one ratio of honey to water mead. Um, And I've been experimenting with those in a more small batch scale because they're a little more pricey to make, but also they just take a long time to age. um, But I think it's going to be a really good use of the barrel because one of the main um, advantages of barrels is the micro-oxidation process. the the fact that there's some oxygen coming through the staves mm-hmm. uh, but at a really controlled and small rate is uh, a fantastic um, contribution to mead. It adds more of a, a nutty character. It adds more of that sherry-like quality that is um, very pleasant oxidation, not that stale or cardboard or yeah um, anything like that. But the uh, if people are just after the um, character of the wood. I think at the home level, um, oak alternatives are better, mm-hmm. uh, especially cubes, um, spirals. I haven't really done a lot with chips, but chips kind of scare me because of the extraction rate. They're a little too fast. Yeah. Um, so, because I I've I've used um, before before doing the barrel, I've used uh, chips and. You're right, it is a really fast extraction that you've got to be... Like, what I like to do is I like to have the beer go, like, the full two weeks before putting in the chips because I want to make sure, like, that thing is cleared because you've got to check it at least every other day to make sure that you're not overpowering that beer. Exactly, yeah, that's... I, I feel the same way about, like, adding peppers or mm-hmm. other other, other adjuncts. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're using Lapsang Souchong, which, as an Englishman, I feel it is my duty to explain that Lapsang Souchong is basically a smoked tea. I've had, like, from a very lovely light smoke that actually, it tasted like brewing beer smelled. It was gorgeous, and I can't find this tea anymore, and I'm very sad about it. But then you can run the gamut to just, like, extraordinarily smoked. Like, Rausch beer is, like embarrassed at how not smoky it is in comparison so like when you're using lapsang sushong what level of smoke are you going for um i was after the like i lay scotch peat level like i really wanted i really wanted that presence in there but not like i didn't want to smoke the honey i didn't want to smoke the must which some meteries have done before mm-hmm. um so what i did is i used uh, I'm not too familiar with the tea. Um, I just purchased uh, one with decent reviews that was loose leaf off of uh, Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I used uh, six ounces in a five gallon batch. Um, so it's very forward. Uh, what I did at first is just use three ounces and I did made a tincture and I soaked it with uh, some scotch that I had. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really good, but I wanted a little more tannin extraction and I wanted just, I, I just wanted a little more of that, um, that tea flavor. So I just brewed up a really strong, um, a strong batch. I just took the three ounces and probably put it in like two cups of, uh, hot water and then let it steep for 10 minutes. And then I strained it and then poured that little cup that was remaining and <laughs> put it in the mead. Um, nice. But, uh, it goes really well with the pasilla peppers and chipotle peppers I added, but yeah, yeah I, I definitely uh, recommend it in terms of adding a smoky character to a mead. Um, I do want to play around more with different teas, and I think a really good thing to do, um, a, a huge tip that I'm going to give as a mead maker is, like, when you get a new honey varietal to, um, to you, like, start out with a traditional using the same process that you would with any other um, traditional. That way you have the same kind of base. There are different yeasts that will do better jobs at fermenting different honeys. Um, but if you ha use like very clean um, yeasts and you just get a really good sense of the honey. Um, I personally like uh, Lalvin QA23. Um, I've heard DB10 is a good one um, for this really like clean fermentation for traditionals. Um, so I recommend doing like clean ferment fermentation traditionals, but also make tea with your, with make uh, make tea and then throw some honey in there and see how it interacts with like a more balanced environment than just eating straight honey. Like if I <laughs> just put honey on a spoon and put it on my mouth, like it's honey. <laughs> I'm going to be overwhelmed with sweetness and I'm going to get some of the characters, but if you dilute it with water and mm -hmm. some of the tannins from teas and it just, it makes the honey character really pop in a more mead like environment. Yeah. And when you're, when you're talking about those different types of yeast, are these mead specific yeasts or is it, cause I mean, obviously for wine, you use a different type of yeast beer. So are these mead like engineered toward mead? Um, no, they're not engineered toward me. They're actually engineered towards wine. Hmm. Um, but most of the research on the market, most of the dollars spent in fermentation science has been around beer and wine. So um, because our process is very similar to wine, both in strength and in the uh, cold fermentation, um, and without heating and extracting um, and using enzymatic functions like that, um, a lot of the wine world can really apply to the mead world. Um, it's, it is interesting to, it would be interesting to have more like yeast that were specifically developed for mead. I know that some companies like advertise like sweet or dry mead yeast, but I think part of that's just a marketing thing. There yeah. isn't enough money in the mead industry to really like drive that innovation. I really hope it becomes that one day, but, um, I would recommend like white wine yeasts for traditionals, um, especially ones that can accommodate your fermentation environment. That's another thing that um, I struggled with in the beginning of my that my mead making. I just 
picked the yeast and threw it in there. Um, my traditional that I had last night was made with uh, D47, which is a good yeast, but it's very temperature controlled, uh, dependent and specific. I've noticed that if it's stressed out in any in any way, if it really isn't in a perfect environment, I pick up a lot of acetone characteristics and a lot of different fusels that I'm not super thrilled with. Whereas QA23 is a little more resilient in my opinion. Um, but that's one of those things where like when people tell me that they can't brew because they're in like California or in the southern part of the U.S. where it's really hot and variable, I'm like, just use some Kvike. Like, yeah, those yeasts are so resilient and a hundred degrees, like, just pitch yeah. it in. <laughs> I'm literally going to make one. I'm going to make a session mead because most of my meads are between twelve and twelve and nineteen percent. Yeah, um, I need some summer sippers. So, uh, what I'm going to do is um, it snowed last night in Vermont. Oh wow. Which is a little, little late, but um, we have had snow at the end of April pretty, pretty easily, so it's not out of the question. But what I'm going to be doing is uh, making a session strength mead, and I'm going to be pitching Kvike Voss and the uh, the fermentation environment. Um, I don't have like temperature control in any way, so what mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing is making my must around 90 degrees, pitching, and then I'm going to be um, insulating the bucket with, uh, ski pants, <laughs> <laughs> um, just wrapping it up and then letting it ride. And I've done it before and it gets that fantastic, uh, kind of slight orange, uh, tropical citrus note mm -hmm. from the yeast contribution. And it ferments cleanly in a, uh, well, cleanly in the sense of not having crazy off flavors, um, usually in 18 to 36 hours yeah it's basically done um that's that's amazing and i just love like the diy nature of this hobby of and i said i probably talk about this every episode but like you go from guys who like oh, i've got my glycol and my temperature control and blah and then it's like yeah i'm just gonna put ski pants around it. it'll be fine <laughs> like exactly. I'm, like I'm pressure fermenting uh, a lager later today, and I'm just gonna wrap that with a blanket and be done. Which totally goes against what the rules of lagering are. But it's like you know what? It's homebrewing. I get to do what I like. Yeah, exactly. Like so, I work in the commercial beer industry. Like I'm, I work for a brewery that is one of the top fifty craft breweries in the U.S. and it's a completely different world. Like what kind of, um, how strict things need to be when you're moving that much beer and wanting that consistency. But as a home brewer, it's, you're enjoying it with friends and family. Yeah. Like that's the thing that makes me make more and more batches is seeing this smile on my family's face when they try something new that I make. And they're like, Oh my gosh, it's the best one you've made yet. And yeah. then they like, what I've been trying to do is guide them t toward more, um, like analytical tasting mm -hmm. um, and sensory partially because that's kind of what I do in my day job. But um, it's just more fun to get that better feedback yeah. um, instead of just like, Oh, this is good. Oh, or, I like oh, this. This is bad. <laughs> like free, free booze is great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing tastes better than free booze. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So, being here at the brew pub, we've got our ever-expanding tap list. So, what mead are you going to be adding to our tap list? All right. So, I have a Balaton and Sumadinka cherry mead that was made with a varietal of um, Eastern European honeys, uh, specifically linden and acacia. And then I didn't have any more, so I used a little bit of lemon blossom. So, kind of a mix of light to medium light honeys. Um, the interesting part about uh, those types of cherries I listed, they're Morello type, which have a really dark and rich flesh, mm. kind of closer to a plum. Um, I think that mead would go really well with um, desserts, but also with really savory and rich dishes, uh, especially I just I just love it with with a nice steak prime rib kind of situation barbecue as well um, it can hold up to the smoke huh. um, so I think that's one everyone should have um, going as far as uh, something very bold and rich uh, berry and uh, prominent honey character to it um, so that's one that I I think that should be on the tap list for sure that's how I would never think to match mead with barbecue yeah so i didn't i didn't think about it either until i thought like okay barbecue sauce is on the sweet and acidic side mm -hmm. like some of these really big bold berry meads are really sweet and acidic um so it just it kind of ma it matches it on that level um and also like with especially pork with the sweetness that pork naturally has to it um, and some of the smoke characteristics that come through are on the sweeter side. Um, I, once I had that combination, I fell in love and that's like <laughs> something I break out for special occasions is that, that wombo combo, one, two punch. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And we'll be putting the recipe for that in our show notes so you can brew and drink along with us. Um, my question is, because um, I do think most people who listen to this probably are beer makers, how hard is that to make as someone who might not have ever made mead before? Um, it's prob I would say it's an intermediate mead maker recipe. Um, if you follow it to a T, it's definitely doable. But it's closer to a winemaking technique where you're using a lot of fruit and you're doing um, uh, cap... Uh, you're pushing down the cap and um, they're punching down the cap is the proper saying Yep. and uh, getting some macerations of the juices and um, the key that I've uh, that I've interact the, the, one of the key uh, tips I have for that style of meat is putting your fruit in a brew bag um, using a lot of uh, pectic enzyme to break up the fruit and also uh not starting off with a really high gravity. Um, I like shooting for my my OG around like uh, 1095 or so, and then um, letting it ferment dry, pull the fruit out, and then um, back sweeten with honey using stabilizing methods. Um, my my go-to is chemical stabilization with potassium sorbate and potassium metabisulfite. So it's really like and there's a lot of YouTubers who've posted recipes similar to this. It's just, um, 
a, uh, a style that ages really well because of all of the tannins and the um, acidity and the level of sugar. Um, so it's one to break out during special occasions. It's not super cheap. It's not super easy, but <laughs> it's, it's doable. Um, for an easy one, I would recommend doing a session mead. Um, going and just using a traditional uh, throwing some oak, oak cubes in primary to get a little more body um, but just mixing honey water yeast uh, 1050 or so for the OG um, I specifically like using Kvike Voss uh, adding plenty of nutrients that's the, that's the case for all meats mm -hmm. there's almost no um, yeast assimilable nitrogen in um, honey and raisins don't cut it. Um, that's the classic meme of <laughs> mead makers is that you got to add raisins, but really I... in order to get enough yam from raisins, you'd need to make a very concentrated um, raisin mead, probably like, I don't know, 10 pounds of raisins per gallon, something stupid. Yeah. I, I have heard that uh, Steph brought this up, that if you want to start a fight in the mead-making world, just bring up raisins. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so then, on the flip side, what would what is the worst mead you've ever made? Like, what is the mead where you're like, I shouldn't have done that? Hmm. So, besides the obvious, like, infected meads, um, which those ones are just due to poor sensation, mm -hmm. poor pro process in general, those ones will happen, and they are avoidable, but they will happen. It doesn't um, matter how good you are, you will get an infection at some point. Yeah, exactly. And uh, But, like, in terms of, like, flavor profile and whatnot, um, what I did was uh, I made a key lime pie mead um, that was for my... Uh, little brother because that's what he loves uh, for his birthday and whatnot. And what I decided to do is just like, I threw too many variables into the equation and sometimes you're paid off uh, with that and I have been before but this one I was burned. Um, <laughs> I used too dark of honey um, toward the flip side, to, toward the back sweetening portion. Mm -hmm. I used uh, a lot of graham crackers um, which is fine, but I would recommend like using a tincture made of with gram instead, just cause it's less messy and, um, you can just control the flavor profiles better with tinctures, especially in that way. Uh, but the real mistake was pairing my citrus with like this really like overly dark honey. It was, uh, it was a, a melter honey from... Um, an apiary, they uh, overcooked the honey and sold it to me, and I didn't bother to even taste it. Um, I just kind of, I was like, oh, this this might have like a crust kind of characteristic, but it had like some acrid notes, and mm -hmm. that does not go well with like a light citrus kind of <laughs> key lime pie. It's like and you I burnt also, the like, crust. Added, I also added like toasted oats too. Like I just did too much. Like, yeah. What I should have done is just made the made a traditional with like orange blossom or lemon blossom, some sort of light tropical kind of tasting honey. Maybe even lahua, which I have going right now. That's a good idea to do a 
a remake of that. And then just like tinker around in secondary with just like a few things and then see how they integrate and taste test as I go. Instead of just like the, the way I see it is almost like you're making a soup and toward the end, you might need just like a pinch of salt mm-hmm. or like a pinch of cayenne or something. But instead, what I did was I poured the whole Molson salt <laughs> container in and just kind of uh, went overboard. So um, I definitely recommend people do a lot of tasting um, during the process of mead making, but also you you can always add more. You yes. can't really take it away. You can't take so. it away. Yep. That, and that's really true. Like, um, you know, when, when you're making IPAs, I learned very early on, like just because you like a lot of bitterness in your IPAs, adding all the hops you can isn't always a good idea because you always hear the word balanced. And until you've made a horribly imbalanced beer, I don't think you 100% know what that means. And it sounds very much the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's the other thing about tasting in general is you get a sense of where balance is. And that's where it's not just, you can't just, you can just take honey water yeast, ferment it. It can come out okay. Yeah. But the real, the real mead making isn't that. The real mead making is once you have that cleanly fermented product, how do you tweak it to make it something way better? Yeah. And that's, I use all these little powders and all these adjuncts and other things in very light doses in order to get that profile. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where simply sitting with, you can have, just go to, a, this is like an exercise on balancing in general. So go to go to the store, get like this really basic white wine, really cheap, like a two buck chuck or something like yep. that. And have some lemon juice, um, some simple syrup, and uh, some really strong black tea. And then what you can do is have different glasses laid out, pour the wine in there, and then kind of dabble in, okay, I'm going to add a couple tablespoons of tea to this one. I'm going to add a couple tablespoons of lemon juice to this one, and then, and then see what those individually add to the to, to the spectrum to, um, to see how that plays into the balance, and then try your fine tuning and tinkering. That's mm-hmm. that's known as a bench trial, um, but I recommend every mead maker to do that. Every every person that can do it should. Um, mm-hmm. It's harder to do with beer, basically because of oxidation issues, and you don't you don't really want to be tinkering around too much in secondary. No, um, but with mead, you totally can, and that's a privilege that we have that we should really use. Yeah, is there um, is there a Reinheitsgebot to mead or version of it? Because I know you said like in Poland they've got like the their laws of it's mead if it's this. But, you know, if people who follow the Ryan Heiskabot, it's like, you've got your four ingredients, that's it. Is mead the same way, or is it adjunct happy? Um, it can be really anything you want with it. And I think that's what um, brings people to the mead world, um, is that it's very unexplored in that sense. And it's not super well defined mm-hmm. in that sense. I would say the Polish example is the most defined regulations on that, but... Literally sitting right in front of me, I have 
a mead that I added walnuts and figs to. I have a mead that I I made in the traditional blonde style, which is uh, fermented whey. Mm-hmm. Um, I used uh, honey and whey and a little bit of oak, and <laughs> it's it's a wild ride. That, that's a small batch one, by yeah. the way. I, I was going to say, that probably sounds like a small batch one to try. Yeah, I would not. I, I mainly am doing it for like a, kind of the meme. Yeah. It's just fun. Like, yeah. And but yeah, I would say meat, meat is uh, really all over the place. Yeah. Um, I think some... There's some, um, like the Meat Institute is an organization that is trying to uh, get some quality regulations um, in place so that, uh, and some meat education in place that really expands the professional landscape of meat making. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're not going to stimmy creativity and just uh, completely um, make it go extinct. Like they want the meat world wants that creative outlet so that we can differentiate ourselves from the other beverages. Yeah, completely. Well, speaking of differentiating ourselves, here at the Homebrew Pub, we turn into whatever your dream homebrew pub or your dream meadery is. So my question is, what is the name of your dream brew pub and what is the vibe of it? Yeah, so... I struggle with naming anything. Um, I just have a hard time with names in general. That would like, explain child one and child two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got it. You got it. I resonated with Dr. Seuss with thing one, thing two. Um, I would want to incorporate some of my um, French-Canadian uh, roots. So probably something similar to something that you would see in Quebec and... Um, maybe have some French sounding meads on tap and whatnot. Um, something that I would really want is my parents have a hop yard. Um, and that's oh, wow. what got me into the, um, the beer industry anyway, but, uh, they are renovating a, um, 18th century house, old farmhouse in Vermont. And, um, there's like a, if you picture like, uh, an old kitchen from the 1800s with like the open hearth and it's kind of dimly lit. Um, I would want that with like plenty of exposed wood and um, a really nice big oak table bar situation. Um, And I want uh, just really bold meads on tap uh, using especially local heirloom apples uh, New England has amazing apples that weren't completely annihilated during Prohibition. Um, so using some of those heritage blends and just gathering from the land a little bit around and especially adding like a, a black currant mead. Um, a lot of my ancestors made cassis, uh, which is a black currant wine of sorts. And so that would be kind of the vibe I would be after is small farmhouse tavern with plenty of age and history to it but a, a backdrop to really creative and fun local locally um, sourced ingredient meads that sounds amazing because I, I love that I love that 1800s vibe and of course I would have uh, plenty of like lambics and 
mixed fermentation beers on tap there because uh, Hill Farm said's in my backyard and um, there's just so much great beer coming out of there. But also I, I really enjoy the tradition of blending and um, I personally want to make a, a mead that is inspired kind of by a Lambic um, quality, but that's probably going to be for another day, but definitely uh, having having some really handcrafted and really thought out uh, beverages on tap is is going to be my my uh, theme over there. Lovely. That sounds great. May, may I suggest a name to you? Because um, before we re started recording, I asked you what NEK stood for, and you said Northeastern Kingdom. And I think with like you know the the eighteen hundred vibe the 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 Quebec, like it, I mean how could it not be Northeastern Kingdom? Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Good call. That that sounds amazing. So everyone, please come and join us at a big oak table. Get a lambic, get a mead, and just come and enjoy a drink with us here at Northeastern Kingdom. It's it's a fantastic time. So, Kyle, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can people find you? Thank you. Uh, people can find me um, on Instagram at NEKMeads. Check out for my reviews, some of the meads I post. Feel free to ask questions about any process and just uh, have a nice drink and enjoy yourselves. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on. This was absolutely amazing. Yeah, thank you. Again, thank you so much to Kyle for coming on and just talking mead. Every time I'm talking to a mead maker, I'm learning so, so much. So any other mead makers or winemakers who want to come on, please do reach out. Do check out his Instagram. I'll be putting a link to that in the show notes along with the recipe for the mead. And of course, thank you so much for listening. If you could leave us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcast, that'll just help other people find the show. If you want to reach out to us, possibly come on and share a pint with me. You can reach us at our website, thehomebrewpub.com, or email landlord at thehomebrewpub.com, or on social, at thehomebrewpub on Instagram and Twitter. And if, like me, you hate those annoying ads, well, we've got to keep the lights on here at the Homebrew Pub somehow. So consider joining our Patreon and becoming a Mug Club member. For $3 a month, you'll get access to ad-free versions of the episodes. But until then, grab your favorite pint, put your feet up, relax, don't worry, and have a homebrew. Till next time, cheers.